Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Well, hey there, it's Nico. By now, you probably know who I am, but awkwardly, I know a whole lot less about you. So many of you tell me that you're listening to the show and I really want to know you more. Who are you? Why are you tuning in? What do you want most from Suncast? Let us know by going to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. It takes just five minutes and we'll read every answer. That's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. All right, here's the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, welcome to Solar Warriors and Climate Champions. It is so wonderful to have you once again back in the house. Another Suncast episode on the road to 300. I can't believe we are almost at 300 episodes for you old timers that have been here all along. I'm just so honored that you continue to tune in. We must be doing something right. We're breaking records as well on downloads, uh, getting near 15,000 downloads a month now. I'm so grateful for each one of you that help us uh, every week make this possible. You give us the only non-renewable resource in your life, and that is your time. So thank you for being here. You are not going to regret being here for today's episode because you are going to hear a familiar voice if you are uh, familiar with Suncast, that being uh, Hannah Green. If you were uh, around for episode 266, I believe, uh, her boss and the co-founder of Pice, the company for which she uh, spends most of her time, he was interviewed as well, Patrick Lee. Today... We're going to flip the script and Hannah is going to take us into what it's like working in a fast moving entrepreneurial role at a mega corporation inside of our energy industry. It's by no means a a, a GE or Microsoft in scale, but certainly Sempra is a gigantic organization. Hannah goes down the rabbit hole on positioning yourself, not only as a a young leader, uh, a, a millennial, but also working through the dynamic as a female leader in a largely male-dominated industry. I think you're going to enjoy some of the ways we explore how that gets worked out. And she is just such an inspirational person. I was so inspired by her contribution to Patrick's episode that I asked her to come back for an episode with us today. You're not going to regret it, so stick around. And if you do love this kinds of content... I encourage you to check out the nearly 300 other founders stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com and go ahead and sign up while you're there to receive a notification every time our uh, episodes drop. You can do that by jumping on our email list. You can also check out our guild where we pre-release content and share our community with you. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, as teased, Hannah Green, the head of commercial development for Pice Energy Solutions, is back in the house. Hannah, good to have you back. Thanks so much, Nico. Pleasure to be back. Excited to chat with you. Absolutely. For those who maybe missed Patrick's episode, I'd like for you to just kick it off really quickly about how Pice, the fast-growing company building technology to manage 
these complex renewable and distributed grids, how it fits into the overall SEMPRA role and your, uh, your role there as a head of commercial development. PICE, as you mentioned, uh, has really grown out of SEMPRA, and it's a very uh, innovative company, and we focus on grid controls technology. Um, PICE is really working to empower our utility developer and asset owner clients um, to manage their energy resources more reliably and efficiently, and of course, to accelerate the transition um, to a more intelligent, renewable, sustainable grid of the future. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, you weren't always the head of commercial development at PICE uh, or of any large uh, company like a Sempra division might be. I'd love to hear a bit more about your career path. You know, growing up in middle America, I can't imagine I grew up in South Carolina. I know it's true for me, but I can't imagine that you grew up in a, in a world where climate change was the soup du jour and where it was just naturally plated for you to drink from the Kool-Aid of uh, what was eventually going to be called the energy transition. So how did you first become aware of it? How did you begin to form thoughts around climate change and how did that influence your career path? Yeah. You know, as you point out, um, I was born and raised in, in Kansas I was somebody who formed really strong opinions very early in their life. Um, uh, definitely knew from a very young age that service was going to be a, a critical part of my career. Um, service is definitely a key tenant in my family. Uh, we have lots of doctors and social workers, um, and it's just really an ethos of, of how I was raised, that a career wasn't necessarily a, a, just a job you went to every day, but it was an opportunity to make an impact in the world and to do something for your community or for society at large. So I um, was definitely a, a you know, uh, even from age 10, like a kid on a mission uh, to uh, to do something um, bigger than myself and and really bring that ethos of, of service um, into how I manage teams and, and into the work that I do today. Climate and environmentalism, certainly feminism, social justice issues that drive me in my everyday life um, and have shaped, you know, everything from, from my career to my friendships to the community I've built were seen as pretty fringe where when I grew up. And, you know, that, that may shock some listeners. I'm not, uh, I'm an elder millennial. I'm, I'm certainly uh, not, not that old. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago that these weren't issues that, that were really talked about, you know, in school, even among friends. You know, when I was a teenager, I was seen as being pretty out there for some of my views. And the way that I dealt with that, as I think many teens do, I became co-captain of the debate team. I did all the research. I found all the stats, all the figures, all the data, and I sharpened my arguments methodically being the good student that I was. You know, what I think I learned from that experience is that even the best data it doesn't change hearts and minds, right? So I, I was often in conflict in those discussions and rarely in change making, right? Or in bringing people along with me. Um, so that's that that was a formative experience, and it's definitely changed the way that I approach my work today, and and really a lesson I learned. Do you have a fond memory, or maybe a not so fond? Maybe it's a, a sharp pain of a time where it was clear to you that sharp arguments don't change minds? Yeah, actually, it's, I think, a, a really powerful learning moment for me 
and I've been fortunate to have this learning moment time and time again, um, but was living outside of my culture. Um, I moved abroad and studied abroad as a teenager in high school. You know, a, a time that really comes to mind in college, I took some time off to do research work in Cameroon. I went there like a good social scientist with my list of questions. I was there to study sustainable agricultural and the economic impacts uh, that investment was having in local communities. So I had my long list of questions and I was doing my interviews and doing my data collection. Sometimes your interview subjects don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. They want to talk about what they want to talk about. The best thing that I did at that time was to shut up and listen. And I, I have notes back in these notebooks that specifically say, shut up and listen. And I crossed off the rest of the questions and just let dialogue happen. Or or even better, I, I, I just let them share. And in those conversations, energy came up time and time again. The lack of access to internet, lack of access to light, the impact of the on-land oil pipeline that had been built through Cameroon. Um, and it was actually through that listening experience that I, I learned the power of empathy, right, to shape your work. And I learned the importance of, of listening to shape, you know, even the most data-driven work or market-driven work. Empathy and listening are pillar of, of, of that work for me. And, you know, it was actually through those conversations that I dove into the energy industry. I haven't looked back. Um, I've, I've been in this space for 13 years and it was, um, it came from really listening and understanding the impact that that energy has on on the world from from that time in Cameroon. Hannah, I had a suspicion that you had done some development work. Obviously, it's on your LinkedIn and I can certainly attest that anyone who has done international development work in particular and has spent time in uh, huts with little to no electricity or water uh, is forced into a world of empathy. It sounds to me that you, like many folks I know who come back from Peace Corps or USAID, your eyes were opened to the possibility to change lives. And that drives sort of the mission that you're on right now that has become your career. Uh, as you put it, an elder millennial. I love that. I'd never heard that term before. So as an elder millennial, how do you describe this notion of mission, which does in many ways sum up the career journey for most millennials I meet. They're not very particularly um, motivational uh, minded uh, from a monetization perspective, uh, but rather from a life journey perspective and, and creating a whole, a whole life impact. Can we unpack that a bit? I mentioned before that, you know, service is, is something that's driven me you know, since I was very young and, and part of how I was raised. And I came to, you know, later I came to mission really as embodying you know what that service means for me so there are, there are a few layers here i think there's you know what what drives me and my personal mission um, but then there's also the element about how mission drives companies right so i've identified my personal mission and really what it means to me and what motivates me what gets me out of bed in the morning what keeps me up late at night keeps me doing work that i love you know continuing to commit to that work time and time again for me that mission is supporting the energy transition right and this this global project really that we're undertaking as a society um, to secure that energy transition and and the future goals that that it can can bring us but when i talk about mission from an organizational leadership or organizational growth perspective i think there's a mis conception. That mission is something fluffy, 
right? That it's a nice to have, that it's a tagline we put on our websites, that it's something auxiliary. And the way that I see mission in how I work with organizations and how I lead teams uh, and what I see in the teams that I most respect and the leaders that I most respect is that they put mission first. And by that, I mean, they think of mission as part of what drives strategy and focus for their company. You know, the, the number one and number two reasons that startups fail. Number one, they run out of cash. And number two, they lose focus, which is inherently tied to number one, right? If you're not focused and making the most out of every minute and every dollar and of your team's time and passion and commitment, you're going to struggle with number one. And so I think for startups, understanding the problem that you're there to solve and harnessing that passion and talent of your team and then focusing it like a laser beam on tackling that problem and on understanding your customers and going to market in a very thoughtful way, mission is how you accomplish that. Mission feeds your strategy at an organizational level and at a go-to-market level. And for large companies and established companies, thinking deeply about your mission can help organize uh, what may be a very complex organization and can help you drive new innovation, bring in new talent, and really motivate your teams across uh, what what might be a a bigger company uh, to help you achieve that future and and the goals that you're driving them towards. One thing that, you know, isn't lost on the listeners that Pies, as I mentioned before, is a part of Sempra, which is a big organization. You're talking about how it applies to startups. And, uh, you know, in the, in the conversation we had with Patrick, we talked a bunch about how Pies is effectively a startup inside of this big organization. It's its own brand and you know, it has its own team and budgets. Do you consider your startup entrepreneur in, in, that, in that regard? Or do you consider yourself as more of an entrepreneur bringing these ideas to life within a larger entity? I think there are elements of of both uh, within PICE. We have the incredible opportunity to work within Sempra and to work with our investors at Mitsui and to leverage the depth of experience and knowledge and uh, vision that they have uh, for the future of this energy transition. We are very much a startup organization as well. Uh, We're in growth mode. We're building a team. We're refining our product. We are going to market in a very different way than a large company does, right? We're, We're thinking very strategically about where as a grid controls company, we can make the most difference to facilitate a more distributed and renewable energy grid uh, and to ensure the resilience of that grid through our work on microgrids and distributed energy resource management systems. We have some of the benefits and, and of course, the the challenges, as, as every startup has, of, of being in that growth mode and defining that future for yourself. And it is a complex market. And we call it the energy transition because we're all dealing with massive change in that market today. So I, I certainly think we have many fellow travelers and, and uh, I'm sure other listeners to, to Suncast as well, uh, who are trying to figure out, you know, once you find that problem that you're trying to solve and you have this motivated and passionate team, where's that fulcrum of opportunity? 
right? Where can you deliver your mission with the biggest impact while growing your company and accelerating that that growth um, to uh, tackle as many projects and opportunities as you can? We've been very fortunate in, in being able to come to market at a time when our solution is very much needed. Um, and we've tackled over 700 megawatts of projects uh, to date. But there are definitely elements of that entrepreneurship and the benefits that we get from that as well um, as the really you know, the excitement and the challenges and the growth that comes from being in a startup space. Hannah, given that you are particularly mission oriented uh, and have been working with somewhat larger, more established companies rather than startups, is there a particular role that you seek or, or have sought to sort of give that mission oriented, growth minded impetus in a role in a company? The roles that I seek out and find are normally working with organizations who are going through change uh, and thinking about the strategy of how they grow as an organization or in a startup environment about how they grow and go to market. You know, just as an example of that, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with founders or work with C-suite leaders to actually write my last job descriptions. And that's always a process of collaboration, of thinking about what the organization needs and where I could fit in to, to help deliver that. Uh, I, I think it's also an example just of, of how our industry is growing and, and shaping, right? And this touches back on that theme of energy transition. Um, the roles that existed five and seven years ago um, actually have to take on a new and different shape in organizations today for, for companies to, to be successful. I think it's fascinating that you just pointed out that you essentially helped write your job description. I'd like to understand what that conversation sounds like, because for most folks that are looking for a job, the idea of writing your job description is really confusing because they would presume a job rec was written, you're interviewed for it, you get hired. How is uh, writing your own job description a, a piece of that? I want to also probe on whether or not these last three jobs were jobs that you like cold applied for or through your network you were recommended for, sort of how they came about. And then I'd like to know what it looks like when you've landed in that new job. Like, How do you get off the runway going in the right direction, especially in the chaos that is a world where your boss effectively asked you to write your job description. <laughs> sure. I've written a lot of job descriptions too. So I, I don't want to knock on, on the managers out there who are working hard to identify, you know, what they needed an organization and post a job. But, you know, my my experience, my, my particular skill set is coming in and, and helping organizations think through change and define a strategy and go to market, whether that's through policy work that I've done, um, whether that's through organizational leadership, consulting work that I've done. And so that work really lends itself to a deep audit of where the company is today and what the vision is from the leadership group or from the C-suite about where they're trying to get to in the future. Um, and I apply, you know, my my approach is to understand the market, right? That's that research element, that data piece that that I've always been good at, even, even as a, a teenager who thought that was enough. And then layering on that next piece of understanding the people in the company and the people in the market, the customers that they're serving, right? That's the, the talking to humans piece of, of identifying a strategy and a role. And so those uh, frameworks, right? And the right path that you take 
in the market and the organization internally and the way it's approaching its external environment, they're different in different companies and different in different company life cycles, right? There's so much good good work and reading out there that talk about, you know, the kind of leader that a, start, that, that a startup requires or that a mature organization requires is different. Um, and of course, some of the best advice I've received from, from leaders in startup companies is that they fire and rehire themselves every year because their job has fundamentally changed. For me, that writing of the job description process is a conversation to understand, you know, what where's this organization at? What do they need? Where do my skill sets align and how can I help them get there? And as a manager, when I hire people. Of course, we think, you know, I, I do as much as I can to define what the organization needs in that job description. But that interview process is a conversation to understand where their skills are and what they can deliver to the organization. And that really flows into, you know, how, how I aim to work with people, uh, whether as a, a colleague, a peer, or a manager. It's deep collaboration and always understanding how can we work together to best serve our customers and to best serve you know where where our organization is at today and where we're trying to go to achieve our mission. I mean what I hear you describing is not in the job interview process necessarily this is in let's say the first 30 days of taking the role is that accurate is that where we're at? Absolutely. So this sounds a lot like then by way of like what you're calling a job description it's more kind of like a 30 60 90 it's like laying out a map of what you're going to accomplish? Absolutely. I uh, A question I ask in every job interview is what would the first 30, 60, and 90 days look like for you coming into this role? Often what I'm interviewing for is strategic thinking. The moment that somebody projects themselves into the future and thinks about how would I tackle these challenges? What are the frameworks that I'm going to apply? What are the things that I need to learn to get up to speed to be effective? You learn from that dialogue about how they approach a role and how they're thinking about their skills in a new environment and what's going to motivate them to serve the organization, right? So I think it's a helpful interview tool, but more than that, you know, for anybody who, who hasn't, um, I highly recommend The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. It's such a good book. And I've I've reread it a couple times. <laughs> I, at minimum, give a flip through my notes on it that I've written out for myself anytime I start a new role, uh, not just with a new company, but within a company. I think many people underestimate the opportunity of just shifting their internal role, whether that be a title change or just a discussion with your team about how your role needs to change to help facilitate the next phase of growth or the next phase in a strategy in the organization, we can actually create those change points, right? And relaunch even within the same roles, even within the same companies. But I think it's especially as we're all working remote or working more remote today, I think some of the key tenets of First 90 Days are a really helpful guidebook, both for managers and for those who might be starting new jobs, uh, particularly around creating a learning framework for yourself and developing some of those timelines to connect with the team, um, understanding that connecting with the, the team and meeting people in those early days it's essential to your long-term success in the job. And, you know, those those are often more than just introductions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your background? But using those discussions as a way to learn about the organization and gather insights from people, um, it's, it's a really powerful opportunity that can set you up on a path for success in your role. 
but there's new people coming into an organization or even people shifting roles can be good for the whole organizational health because you, you learn things in that change process. Are there one or two gems that you have pulled out of your reading and rereading your notes that set for you the right framework in terms of what am I here for when you arrive at a new, a new role? Yeah, I touched a little bit on learning plan. I think that's really a foundational piece of it. Create a learning plan for yourself. And I would even encourage folks to do that um, before the first day, right? You can start to absorb, you can start to read the materials if, if they're willing to share them with you. You can start to speak to people who have worked with the organization, partners, clients, colleagues who, who, who might be tangential to the organization, and just build those connections and, and build, build your awareness, right? I think it's a, an easy one to know that you would need to meet with your director of reports if you're a manager. But if you're not in a management role, if you're in a more flat organization or you don't have direct reports, meeting out and meeting up are equally important. None of us do work in a silo. So much of, of onboarding is about, you know, as I mentioned before, not just meeting with people. Hi, how are you? Where do you come from? But understanding what they see as their role and impact in the company, understanding what they see as opportunities for improvement and what they need from you in your new role. You have this amazing window of insight when you're new into an organization and having a structured flow with a series of questions for those first one-on-one conversations can be a really great tool. Yeah, I think that one of the things I often find people uh, struggling with is the difference between learning and doing, and especially the first Mm -hmm. 30 days, because the organization wants to see you jump right in and perform. You feel lost and trying to figure out exactly what to do. You want to be a contributor. Uh, To your point, Watkins breaks this down very well and gives a good framework in his book. We'll, we'll, We'll link to that in the show notes. And I find that oftentimes, especially in a startup environment, as opposed to corporate, corporate environment seems to get this and they have these sort of training programs, even, you know, six month training programs to kind of rotate people through different departments, obviously job dependent, but startups will tend to throw you in the deep end. You show up on day one with your, with your terminal, you plug into the terminal and you start cranking out code as it were. And they miss this opportunity. One of the recent engagements I had, the very first thing that we did for the first week. And I guess this is a little bit my bent, but they were totally open to it is I literally interviewed every person in the company the way I would like a Suncast interview. I just said to the management, like, give me a list of the people that I should know in the organization. And I went through one by one and spent an hour with each one of them. And it was really good to give feedback to management and to get insight into each person. But I was able to give feedback right there to management about what I was hearing in the organization and ask if that was true. And it was just like priceless for them and really informative for me of how I was going to be able to help plug into that organization and help them grow. That's a great insight. You know, I think about the first 30 days as listening, right? It's uh, another book I would highly recommend is Talking to Humans. And it focuses a lot on understanding your customers and on developing customer empathy as a design principle and how you go to market. The same frameworks can be applied within an organization. Um, So, those first 30 days to me are kind of auditing, listening, interviewing, as you would say. At 60 days, deepening your analysis, right? Understanding the market better, starting to put together a framework of how you think your role and next steps will look. And by 90 days, it's my goal in a role to have a a pretty solid strategy about how I'm going to spend the next 
three, six, and nine months, right? To really get some early wins, start delivering value to the organization as quickly as possible while making time and a really conscious effort, especially in startups, building in that time for the bigger projects that are going to deliver the longer term value. Hannah, that's amazing. Uh, I feel like I've learned something and I read the book. I think that if you have not had a chance to uh, dig into actually how to set up your your first 90 days on a roll and you're getting ready to transition into or up in our industry, you owe it to yourself to check that book out. Hannah, I'd like to have you back and let's dig deeper. As I understand it, you've uh, spent some time creating a template around uh, how to help folks on your team do this. I'd love to have you help folks within the Suncast community and sort of train uh, us on how to set this up. And one of the things that I tell folks is there's never a bad time to to sort of kick off a 90-day plan because even if you missed this in your first 90 days, the next 90 days could be the best 90 days of your career. Would you be down to that to do that? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Love a good template. Hey, side note listener, Hannah and I actually did record that conversation. And if you'd like to have a sneak peek at it before it comes out as a Tactical Tuesday, I'd encourage you to jump in and join our guild. We have a special on the guild coming up for our 300th episode and fifth year anniversary. And you can get a sneak peek at that conversation with Hannah about how to develop your 30, 60, 90, as well as a bunch of other stuff that we have in the guild that is private to our members only. So if you haven't checked that out, this just felt like a good moment to pause and say, Get in there and check that as well. Back to the conversation with Hannah. Hannah, I find that the work that you guys are doing is really core to this energy transition. What do you characterize as the problem that you're trying to solve and how does it drive your daily work? I joined PICE after different pieces of my career where I've been able to touch uh, federal programs, local and state programs, and policies and regulation, all working to incent electric vehicles, electric vehicle service equipment, solar equipment, storage equipment, energy efficiency, building performance, demand response. So I've been very fortunate to have this sort of 360 experience touching a lot of different parts of of our industry. And what brought me to PICE was that our organization is building the technology and delivering today the controls to knit all those pieces together to operate a more resilient, connected, distributed, renewable grid. What drives me every day, as I mentioned before, really my core mission is around serving that energy transition. And PICE is squarely at the center of that. I think something that's often missed in our industry is what we mean when we talk about the energy transition. There's the core of of the, you know, you see this in the S&P global definitions, you see it in the big analyst reports, you know, clearly the shift to more renewable energy and the shift to a more diverse portfolio of energy assets and generation at the transmission level and distribution level, that is an underlying foundational theme of the energy transition. There are other pieces, though. One that I think is under-discussed today and that really motivates a a lot of my work is around thinking about the energy grid as critical infrastructure. Um, I think anybody listening to this who works at a utility thinks about this every single day, but many of us who might work more in the distributed space are, are coming up to speed on this conversation and how much energy actually defines our modern economy. Just a, a, an example point for you, the Department of Homeland Security defines 16 core infrastructure pillars. 
of our modern economy. Um, I won't list them all, but you know, to give you some examples, it's healthcare, telecom, water, defense, chemicals, emergency and government services, finance, manufacturing, transportation. Right? Like these are these are the things that make up our daily lives. And I think w- with our experiences right now with COVID nineteen, we're all perhaps more aware of those critical infrastructure pieces maybe than ever before, right? As I list those off, you start thinking as an energy nerd like me, energy runs all of those industries, right? Like we we are the lights that they turn on to power, you know, the the servers that run our financial markets, right? Our defense industry can't do what it does. Our telecom industry can't do what it does without the critical infrastructure of energy. So there might be 16 core pillars, but there's one that's the backbone under all of them, and that's our energy system. And so I think as we talk about the energy transition, we're talking about a shift in our economy and then a shift in our critical infrastructure. And that means we have to look not just at the transition uh, to this broader portfolio of energy resources and bringing on more renewables, but it means we have to think about resilience at a much deeper level and the the criticality of that resilience to, to our economy. It means we have to think about security and we need to think more and talk more about energy as a national security issue. And something I think about a, a lot we need to think about access and equity, right? Energy has to be affordable. It's it's a cornerstone of our economy and of our daily lives. And in the United States, we have energy access issues. Energy burden on households with lower incomes is exponentially larger than the energy burden of those with higher incomes, it, meaning the percentage of income they pay to have utility or energy services. And there's a social justice element in this transition as well. How do we include communities who have previously dealt with the downstream and environmental impacts of energy production to be the centers and and beneficiaries of a renewable transition in in, uh, siting and in economics and in jobs and opportunity? And how do we expand that access and affordability globally as well? I concur with you. Energy apart from being one of the 16, it is an underlying fundamental truth of all 16 pieces of this national security document by the Department of Homeland Security. We'll link to that in the show notes, by the way, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is things like chemical and dams and financial services, but they all are underlying how we service this economy and the growth of this economy. To your point, both from a development perspective and from just an empathy perspective, where do you see sort of the growth of our industry as it relates to addressing in any real way the inequity in the gender gap, in the race gap, in energy equality domestically and abroad? Have you spent, uh, have you spent time thinking there? And I don't know to what extent it relates to Pice and the product, but it'd be magic if you somehow, uh, if you guys are still are somehow working on that too. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because I feel, I get the sense that you've thought a lot about it. We are working on it. And and these are the, the pillars and the themes that motivate my work and our team every day at Pice. We know that this future is going to require new technology approaches to help facilitate this more renewable, resilient, affordable, interconnected grid globally. Um, so I, I have the great pleasure of getting to work on these these key challenges every day in the form of, of grid controls technology. But beyond that, to, to think about the industry as a whole, and it actually does t- tie into my work as well, 
if we're going to tackle these big challenges, we have to start thinking about partnership in a really different way, right? We're, we're talking about changing the way that we develop, generate, use energy. And we've already touched on how much of our society, right, this energy conversation is going to touch on. And that means we all need to get really comfortable not just with the markets and the strategy and, and, and the strong technologies piece, but with that empathy piece. We've got to listen deeply to meet people where they are, uh, whether that's in a business-to-business environment and helping companies shift or think about how they go to market or the future of their business or sector. Um, there's a great deal of empathy and listening that we're going to need to help facilitate that change, right? And and adopt new solutions. Um, adopting new technology isn't a switch we flip. It's technology management and integration, but it's also change management at a very, very human level. And that really starts with empathy and listening and meeting people where they are. I think as well, we need some new frameworks for radical collaboration. It might be a little against the warrior concept, right? And in the solar warrior vein, which which I love, you know, it is motivating and it is exciting to, to be a, a solar warrior and, and uh, love that you've built this tribe, Nico. I, I want to throw out a slightly different concept than, you know, maybe the oppositional themes of competition in business and of a fight. Um, and something that really drives my work every day is thinking about radical collaboration. How do we work with people who we think we compete against? Um, how do we turn competitive conversations into partnership um, with the goal of going out and doing more together faster, right? And of facilitating big change. Um, I don't think the energy transition is going to happen if our biggest and best and brightest minds um, in, in the industry and in the world, whether they be in telecom or technology or oil and gas and utilities, we're not going to figure this all out unless we all figure out how to talk together and, and work together um, and harness all of that global talent, create that space for empathy and learning from each other, and then develop new frameworks for how we're going to work together to accomplish this. Hey. I bet you are trying to figure out how do I follow along with what's happening with Solar Power International this year. North America Smart Energy Week 2020 is just days away. And I've got great news. We are going to be doing a weekly roundup. That's right, a recap. If you're familiar with the work we did last year at the Podcast Lounge, we have doubled down again with the sets, folks, and we're bringing it to you every Friday for the next seven weeks. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash SPI 2020. That's SPI 2020. It's going to be lots of fun. Go check it out. There's even prizes. You don't want to miss it. MySuncast.com forward slash SPI 2020. Hey there, commercial solar warriors. If you listen to this show, then by now you're very familiar that Extensible Energy's DemandX load flexibility software helps close more deals and faster by shifting to lower time of use rates and saving your customers 30% annual demand charges, all at a tenth of the cost of battery-based solutions. But did you know that Extensible also has a new solar partner loyalty incentive program that rewards your sales team with a generous sales bonus? Well, for now, until the end of the year, when you complete just three successful DemandX installs, your sales team member will get a $2,500 check or vacation voucher for when we all do get to travel again. This program also applies to your past customers who already have solar and could benefit from DemandX extra savings. Just contact Extensible Energy at 
extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast to become a DemandX reseller and get all the program details and benefits for yourself. Again, that's extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. You know, one of the things that stood out to me in the interview with Patrick and why I wanted to bring you back on is I was really impressed with how well you understand the market that you're serving, but also the broader market that your partners, industry peers, and sort of the ecosystem that you guys have adopted is built upon. How do you think about market development from the context of building partnerships, but also from that perspective of getting the first meeting? Market development is a huge part of what I do in in my role today and and a huge part of, of, of my career. I think understanding what are the shifts that are happening in a market, right? What are the policies that have been enacted and what are the structures, whether they be financial or regulatory, that drive the system, right? Um, So, I, I always start with understanding those market pieces. The importance of regulation is often overlooked um, by by people who are bringing products to market and solutions to market. This is a highly regulated industry and sector. Um, So, understanding not just the regulation in effect today, but joining the regulatory conversation and understanding what's unfolding, what are the visions and the frameworks that are driving that future, I think is really essential. Um, Because if you're meeting with with somebody in the utility space who's leading an organization, they're going to be really mindful about the way that regulation is driving or changing their day-to-day life and their industry and their role. So, you need to have that context coming in um, to understand how you fit within the, f- the framework of the policy, the market, the economic drivers. Um, and of course, you want to understand you know, where that business who you're meeting with is at and what are the problems you can solve for them. When somebody's just jumping in and getting a feel for what's going on in the industry, look at the industry associations. Here in California, we have numerous local and state level. There are many uh, nationally as well. But looking at those associations to see what they're writing about in their blogs and what they're publishing, as well as just looking at their member lists, I think is, is a really powerful place to start. Of course, Whenever you can, listening into webinars and conversations among leaders. I'm a huge fan of SEPA. We'll give our friends at SEPA a shout out today. I think they frame up so many of these topics, right, on what's changing in the industry, and they bridge the technical and the operational really beautifully. Within the context of gaining and giving mentorship, are there particular mentors that have made a big impact in your career? And what are the key lessons or takeaways that you? both utilize and give to others? Mentorship has played an essential role in my career and and continues to play really an an essential role in in my professional career, but also in my personal career. And that's actually terminology that was shared with me by, by a mentor not all too long ago. If we think about our lives as our careers and then everything else, right, and we create these dichotomies between our, our work lives and our home lives, um, we're actually building walls that prevent us from being our most authentic leaders in our career space, right, and, and of um, uh, showing what we care about and bringing our personal mission to work. But we also may be underdeveloping 
parts of our personal career. So thinking about having a personal career and a professional career and what you want to accomplish in life as a whole is something that I've learned from from mentors and, and, a, and a framework that I find really useful, right? Especially if you're really grinding and, and working on something that you love, you're remembering, you know, that, that you have a responsibility, right, to your personal career. I, I have found to be great advice. Being a mentor is one of the most fruitful parts of my career. And I know early on, I felt maybe a little embarrassed, right, to ask people who I admire for their time. And what I've learned being a mentor now is that that's the highlight of your week, right? That coffee with that person who you think is talented and exciting and learning. It's what makes all of all of this work, you know, even that much more fun. And so I would say if you if you're looking for a mentor, don't be afraid to ask. Mentors like to do this. You know, that's something I've had to learn along the way, as well as the concept of having a personal boardroom. I think we put a lot of pressure on finding a mentor you know, somebody who could fulfill all of your career advice and needs. And, you know, it's a little bit of an archetype, right? A little bit of a movie archetype. I think a way that people can get started and thinking about getting career advice and giving career advice is you probably already have people, whether they're friends or peers, who you really respect and get advice from today. And if you think about them as part of your personal boardroom, when you go out and look for different types of career mentors, you can look for different things in different people rather than boiling it all down to one person and, and build that, that boardroom for yourself who's actually going to be with you throughout your career um, and not just at a flashpoint. I want to know who is in your boardroom. I can't tell you. <laughs> Come on. Sure you can. Let's share. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Give me three. Three in your boardroom. Three in my boardroom. Friends are really critical to me in my boardroom because they've mm. known me. They know me at my core. They know things about me that I don't know about me, right? Let me ask a clarifying question before we dig into this. Are, are you referring to a boardroom you actually check in with the way a normal company would a boardroom? Or is this a virtual boardroom that you sort of manifest and you metaphysically check in with? It is a virtual boardroom, but I do specifically keep tabs on how often I'm checking in with them. Fantastic. Okay. And do it regularly. Yeah. But these are living people, to be clear. These are living people. Okay, cool. These are living people, some of whom know they're in my boardroom. And so you don't need to name yet. You don't need to name names, but I'd love to know like archetypes. Yeah, archetypes. Friends, right? Because they, they know you and they see you and they might know or see you at a different level. Right? They can see the things that are true for you over time and in different roles. And they have that outside perspective in your life that is so valuable. So definitely some, some friends on mine. Um, peers, people who I completed my MBA with or peers who hold positions at similar levels and lead organizations, we exchange advice in real time. They are living in that reality. They're dealing with their challenges. These are people who I'm on WhatsApp or Slack with every couple of days. And they we really do turn to each other and, and support each other. And that's been exceptionally powerful um, in, in my career. And like tactical stuff, right? Really tactical stuff. And then I would say the third group are those people who have vision 
I've um, been fortunate to find and, and have also worked to seek out and put myself out of my comfort zone to ask people who I really admire if they'd meet me for a cup of coffee and a breakfast. People who have led Fortune 500 companies, served in public office, sit on boards for companies today, and they see things and know things that I don't know. I find those conversations to be extremely illuminating and often very grounding. One of the things I've learned from those leaders, I'm an introspective person. I definitely will sit at home at the end of a workday and and think about what I could do better as a leader. And um, did I say enough? Did I do enough? And what I've learned from, from those most successful executives is that they take that time as introspection, right? And that having imposter syndrome or dealing with anxiety and and thinking about, did I make the right decision are actually traits in really humble leaders um, who who can be very strong and effective leaders. Um, but, you know, thinking that that somebody who can lead a successful organization, you know, that that they don't worry or or think about if they're doing a good job or that they don't look for feedback too is you know perhaps a, a lie that we allow to perpetuate but I, I've learned that really the best leaders are introspective and want feedback and really think through right and and are really careful to make sure that that they're doing the right things every day I've thought about a million times the t-shirt that I would create and it says on the front I'm an imposter don't judge me <laughs> and uh uh, there's probably another 10 that I've thought about creating as real t-shirts, but that retrospective is so important and so few people do it. Uh, I feel like the entire conversation we're having today, I can break into 50 courses that we would teach the tribe on things that you at such a young age have been able to think about and craft and hone. And I just admire and respect and acknowledge you for that. And I do want to just say again for everyone who missed it because they were walking and chewing gum at the same time. Everyone has imposter syndrome, everyone. And if someone tells you they don't or that they don't think about their mistakes and they just like, it rolls off their back, it is either an incredibly enlightened person or an incredibly arrogant person. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, the, the lesson that I've taken out of that is that we all owe it to ourselves and our organizations to, to do the hard work and do the research and come with the skills. But then so much about effective leadership is creativity and flexibility. Are there what you would consider now looking back road signs or clear markers of success where you realized something and you doubled down on it and it really worked out for you? I've had a lot of change in my career whether it was transitioning from consulting to nonprofit work or from nonprofit work, different types of nonprofit work, right? And legislative or regulatory policy or programs um, to transitioning to, to a startup and being more technology focused and, and market facing. I find that I, I learn in every single one of those transitions and, and changes. I think about that change really tactically. And I am conscious about the choices that I make, not just in my careers, but not just role to role, but in my career over time. I've actively sought out different types of roles in the energy industry. And I love working in energy. Uh, I'm a huge nerd about it. I'm going to be here for the rest of my career. I'm 13 years in and I'm thinking about the next 13. And so, I'm not, I'm not worried about leaving this industry. I'm worried about 
deepening my knowledge and seeing it from different perspectives over time. Do you have any advice in particular for women who are looking at transitioning into clean energy? How or where to start? What fears to overcome? What roles need more feminine leadership and energy? Where are we shortchanging ourselves as an industry by by effectively having gender roles? I would say my advice certainly doesn't just apply to to women. Um, a lot of people who I mentor or who approach me about joining the industry, whether they're women or not, are, are people who who want to make a difference, right? And I would say to to those people, energy is. I think one of the best places, if not the best place that you could build your career and make a positive difference over time. If you don't see somebody in our industry who looks like you or who who you can see yourself and your career path within, I would say just start building network and start looking. I think our industry is diversifying. Um, I think we have a long way to go. But the best thing that, that those of us who are in management or leadership positions can do is to actively recruit and to build diverse networks ourselves, and to bring more people into this space because the water's warm. We need a ton of talent. We need a lot of new perspective. You know, what I encourage anybody who wants to join to join, reach out. Don't be afraid to ask for mentorship. Don't be afraid to ask for advice. We need you here. I want to follow up on one piece that you said there. As managers, we need to re- diversify recruiting techniques. I find that that is something that's a stumbling block for a lot of hiring managers in particular, I talk to a lot of recruiters who, who say that they struggle helping hiring managers put together a hiring plan that includes diversity and inclusion. And that in the industry, by and large, I'm sure you've seen this, we have a net loss of female or person of color recruitment because we engage in a lot of companies switching, poaching someone and giving her a better role, poaching someone and giving him a higher position. And so moving people around in the industry rather than really bringing a lot. I mean, in, in high tech and in oil and gas, there's so many talented people of all walks of life and there's diversity. And yet we struggle with it in our industry still. Do you have any feedback for a manager who's struggling to put together these pieces as part of their hiring strategy? Yeah. The, the first thing I would say is if, if your company has a diversity and inclusion framework or group who's committed to these issues, reach out to them. That's something that that I'm actively doing and, and trying to engage in those learning conversations myself, um, learn from those who have thought most deeply about this, right? And, and build on their frameworks. Um, you, you don't necessarily need a new mousetrap if somebody in your broader orbit is an expert in this space and you can learn and listen, learn from them and listen to them. Um, so I, I would say starting there. Did you say reach out to your DNI committee? Is that what you were suggesting basically? If you have a committee or a department within your company, they have resources and they're a great place to start. Got it. I'm going to say that that is a woefully undercreated resource in our industry. So what about the, I don't know, I'm going to wager 95% of the companies that haven't even thought about creating a committee on this yet. Where do they start? Like, how do you create a committee? What does that even look like? Is it only of the women and people of color? This is a fundamental problem for a 40 something white man trying to figure out like, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, and hard to do, we need diversity. We all recognize it. We all recognize it. 
I know some really talented people in this space who are not me, right? But this is their field of expertise. And I, I am definitely a true believer in uplift and, and shine a light. Um, I don't know if you've heard the term shine theory, but shine on the people doing the good work in their space and and uh, lift them up. So I I would love love to shine a shine shine on some good DNI folks in our industry for you. You've mentioned some incredible books. One is First 90 Days by Watkins. Another is Talking to Humans. Was that by Constable? Gif Constable? Yes. Fishburne and Rimalovsky. Uh, Rimmel, Rimmelovsky and Constable. Yep. Fantastic. Sounds like a law firm. Constable Fishburne and Rimalovsky. <laughs> we'll link to both yes. of those. But I'm curious, is there a book on your nightstand that you're reading that's making, making an impact on you? They're tried and true, but I'm a, I'm a big Brene Brown fan. A um, lot of good stuff there. We've touched on some of my other favorites. Some others in my queue, um, one that is business-related is Strategize to Win by Carla Harris. That's on my reading list. Um, so is The Art of Authenticity by Carissa Thacker. And then, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the importance of, of friends and of having that personal boardroom. And I threw out Shine Theory. So I, I feel like I, I owe them uh, the call out as well. But the book I've got right here on my desk is Big Friendship um, by Ann Friedman and Amina Tussaud. Oh, fantastic. So the um, Big Friendship is kind of the underlying book that forms the framework for Shine Theory. They've talked about Shine Theory in their work for a long time, and they finally wrote a book together. So excited to read it. What habit, or perhaps you might think of it as a consistent practice, do you engage in on a daily basis that for you gives you leverage? It amplifies your ability to work. Yeah. It used to be weightlifting in a gym. No way. And now it is, um, yeah, uh, strength training was really, really big for me. Um, and now it's weightlifting on my patio or going on walks. Um, so I'm a lifelong athlete. I was a volleyball player and learning to, to find out how I integrate that into my new remote quarantine life. Um, so that's been big. And then making time for conversation with peers and colleagues and, and that personal boardroom is big for me too. So a lot of virtual coffees lately. Um, you know, what I, what I used to do were morning walks before work um, at, you know, basically with sunrise. Friends. Um, uh, friends, colleagues, you name it. Um, but it's a great way. It's sort of the anti-happy hour right? You move, you get caffeinated, you talk. So those building those walks into my schedule has done a, a lot for me. What time is sunrise? Oh, I go early. There's no too early for me. I'm a farm kid. You are a farm kid. We should have talked about that. I'm a farm kid too. So uh, I just got up yesterday, uh, quick story with, uh, I have three sons. My middle son is like mini me, Josh. And he said, Tuesdays are my day off. And so we had planned for two weeks to go to this place called uh, Siete Bocas. It's Cenote. It's an underground cave. And the night before, which he's been anticipating it for two weeks, it's his favorite place on the planet. He said, Dad, wake me up at six o'clock. Because, son, you realize we're not leaving until eight. He goes, I know, but you, you challenged me to get up early. Because he said, I'm getting up early. I said, what time is early? And he said, seven. I go, meh, that's not early. <laughs> and, so, and so I come home and he goes, I guess my wife had coached him. Uh, he goes, I, I want to get up at six. I'm like, all right. So I went over, I tap him on the shoulder thinking he's going to roll back over. And he bolts up in his bed. He looks at me, he goes, I'm up, let's go. He comes back into my room, lays down. I'm like, you're up, huh? I start putting on my, uh, my swim trunks. I go, I'm going to go walk on the, on the shore. And we go for an hour long walk. And I got to tell you, oh, great. it was the best. It was the highlight of my month. It was That's amazing fabulous. from six to seven. Yeah. I just spent that time with my son. 
So I'm a huge advocate for what you just suggested, which is schedule time in the morning with people you want to spend time with. That's beautiful. And you'll find, you know, for those folks who are trying to get time with leaders and mentors, get them in the morning. It's so true. Not only are leaders readers and readers of leaders, as I've said before, we've got some good books for you on that. But most of the leaders I know, especially as they age, <laughs> I never was this way in my 20s, but most leaders I know uh, start to get up early. They recognize with kids in the house, the earlier you get up, the more personal time you have. That's why you see you know, Jocko Willink and a plethora of others with their 4.30 and 5.30 challenges to get people out of bed because there's so much sacred time in the morning before 7 a.m., before the house is rolling. Hannah, this has been a, a tour de force of uh, lots of great insight, and I'm sure that, that there are folks still hanging on our every word with bated breath. How could those folks reach out to you? Because they've hung out to the end. Reward them with a way to seek your mentor mentorship. I'm excited to connect with more of the Suncast community. Um, you are encouraged to find me at pice.com and reach out to me through my organization and my work there. Um, you can also find me on uh, LinkedIn. And one of these days, I'm going to get my own website set up. And uh, Nico, I'll share that link with you and your listeners when I do. Absolutely. And, and for those of you who have plugged in at all to our uh, coaching community and our mentoring community, look for Hannah to be sort of uh, floating around in there as well. So we're looking forward to that and can't wait to get you up to speed there. Well, let's end today, sad as it sounds, with a bold prediction, something not quite so sad. What one thing do you see happening in the market, Hannah, that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I'll make a plug for radical collaboration again. I think as we work more remote and our teams are remote, we're going to think really differently about how we partner with organizations who might have teams or skills or expertise that help us get the job done and, and help us keep making progress. Our sector is booming. We're actually doing really well, not just at PICE, but I know many of our partners and colleagues are doing well through this really challenging time. Uh, so I'm going to uh, crystal ball it, put my bet down. I think we're going to continue to be in big growth mode. Um, and I, I'd encourage folks to lean into that. Fantastic. Well, we will be leaning into and learning how to incorporate radical collaboration here in Suncast and, and the community that we are fostering. Hannah Green is the head of development for PICE. If uh, you are still this far into the interview and don't understand what PICE is, then go check out episode 266, where her boss and co-founder of the organization, Patrick Lee, got more into detail. Hannah, it is a true joy, a gem of these uh, nearly 300 episodes now to have this deep discussion with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. Really a pleasure. Well, well, Solar Warriors, thank you so much for hanging in. This entire conversation for me was manna. It was so enjoyable. Thank you, Hannah. I hope that you all are more prepared than ever to take on the energy transition with renewed vigor and strength, insight and tactical and practical advice. And if, like Hannah, you fashion yourself as an entrepreneur, then I'm sure you got a ton of uh, value from this discussion with Hannah, I am buzzing with so many ideas for how we can put it to work for you here in the tribe. Uh, we always post these on LinkedIn, so a simple comment in a post there would really fill me with joy today if you'd go do that. Another thing I'd like to just check out, if you are on Twitter or even LinkedIn, uh, do a screenshot 
of the show and post it with a comment of the episode and what you learned. I'm curious how many action takers we actually have here who listen to the outro. If you're eager to keep learning, then my fellow Philomath, you can check out the resources and highlights, links from the discussion that we had today, along with social media links, book recs, and so much more at mysuncast.com. We keep trying to make that searchable and more uh, user-friendly for you, <laughs> including a pending move over to WordPress, which we have to get busy on. And hey, while you're there, would you fill out the listener survey so that I can get a little more information on who you are and why you listen? It really helps us make this so much better for you. I do hope you'll tune in next week for more inspiring and tactical advice. On Tuesdays, we feature shorter form episodes called Tactical Tuesdays, where we introduce you to subject matter experts in 20 to 30 minute discussions designed to give you specific information uh, that at very least makes you more interesting in your networking conversations. And each Thursday, as in today, you get these longer form conversations with founders, executives, change makers, and thought leaders of the clean economy. We explore their origin stories, glean their on-the-ground insights and advice, and delve into their personal business, as you heard us do with Hannah today. Life hacks and all, how they up their game, and we hope that it well equips you on your journey from apprentice to master. And lastly, of course, if you are a newbie to the industry, I encourage you to check out two things right now. You can go over to Facebook and join the Energy Guild, which is a network of hundreds of our clean energy professionals and friends and peers in our boardroom. And you can get access to exclusive live trainings, mentorship, and guild-only guides over there. You can also watch the replay of the recent Suncast Summit, which was a fantastic look at how to get a job in the solar industry and how to improve your diversity in this industry as a hiring manager. Uh, diversity and inclusion is a topic that is high on a lot of people's minds these days. So if you'd like to check out more of that and some of the other events that we have coming, you can go to events.mysuncast.com or you can go to suncastcareersummit.com. Either one of those will take you to more information on how to watch that replay, how to get more info on the virtual and in life when we can events that we host. Until then, remember you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>